headphones. It's time for Naughty Talk with Sunny Lee Maine. Welcome to Naughty Talk with Sunny Lee Maine, the podcast that explores all things kinky in a sexy and inclusive way. This show is intended for mature audiences aged 18 and up, and some listeners may find it disturbing. We believe in risk-aware, consensual kink here on the show, so if you do try things mentioned on the show at home, know that neither the show nor the cast are responsible for any accidents, injuries, legal or property damages that may occur while getting your kink on. Welcome to Season 1, Episode 4 of Naughty Talk. I'm Sunny Lee Main she her and I'm here with Mac, he, him. How are you today? Hey, Sunny. I am great. How are you? I'm well, thank you. I am looking forward to talking about one of my very favorite topics today with you, sensual BDSM. Yes, it's going to be fun. (laughs) Can you be a little more enthusiastic, Daddy? (laughs) Yay! Yes, it's going to be fun. There we go. Excellent, excellent. All right. So, We've talked a little bit about what BDSM is, what it means, and I want to focus a little bit on the sensual part. So what makes BDSM sensual? What does sensual BDSM mean to you particularly? Well, uh, you know, if you break it down a little bit, BDSM, you know, obviously uh, is uh, a type of sexual play. So I look at it as a type of sexual play that involves more than one sense. I would agree with you. I definitely think that sensual BDSM or even just sensual play is play where you are not just focusing on one thing. For a lot of people, it's touch and you're focusing really on all five senses. You are utilizing deprivation with intent and by doing that, you are really making it a mind, body, spirit experience rather than, you know, just play that involves touch or physical sensation. Absolutely. That's a great definition. So central BDSM is something that is accessible to people of all levels and abilities. It really is for everyone. And I think the best way to sort of organize our conversation would be to kind of go sense by sense. And I really want to start with the ones that are most often overlooked. And so why don't we start with taste? So when you're focusing on taste and you're making a scene more sensual or more sexy, how can you incorporate that particular sense? Oh, that's a great one. I, I actually love taste. Um, for for me, you know, some of my favorite ways to incorporate taste into a scene, you know, the obvious one would be in obviously introducing food into the scene. Uh, some of my favorites would be chocolate, uh, strawberries, whipped cream. But beyond that, one of my favorite uh, ways to incorporate taste is I, I have a bit of an oral fetish. So being able to taste my partner is uh, particularly erotic for me. And what does my kitty taste like, Daddy? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, you're going to put me on the spot. No, um, it's, it's actually very sweet. Um, I It's one of my favorite activities to do with you is to go down on you. 
and primarily, you know, not only is it your responsiveness to it, but also the way you taste is um, particularly delectable. What a coincidence. I also enjoy (laughs) this particular act. So, okay. So just in general terms, the taste of your partner's body. And this might be something that you can influence. So maybe you love the way your body or your partner's body tastes. Maybe you want to take the time to actually deliberately, you know, sample your partner's flavor or to have them in some way taste themselves. That can be really hot. Or maybe you want to take a sip of something with a certain flavor like whiskey or wine or peppermint before kissing your partner. Some people find just the taste of toothpaste to be really sexy when they kiss their partner. And, you know, there's feeding each other. I think about things like lip balm, about hypnosis with, I don't know what we should call them, maybe like flavorgasms, (laughs) where... (laughs) You know, you and I have done a lot of this. And so um, Mac is my daddy. I've mentioned that several times on the show, but he loves to bake and he makes really delicious vanilla cupcakes with chocolate frosting. And of course, that's my favorite combination or, or one of them. And so when we apply hypnosis, we have made just the act of tasting the cupcake orgasmic. So he'll bake a cupcake, I will eat it. And as I'm eating it, I'm coming. And then sometimes I will do something like drop him in hypnosis. And so as I'm eating the cupcake and having an orgasm, I suggest that he has an orgasm while I'm having an orgasm. And it's all really starting with that chocolate frosting. And, you know, even when I'm not in trance, certain foods that we play with, sometimes when I have a bite of them, I might not have a full-blown orgasm, but then later in that day, I mean, I could be eating a cupcake at an office meeting, you know, you, you don't know, but, you know, I have the memory of that experience, which is really awesome. Maybe I should start a bakery, Daddy's Magic Cupcakes. <laughs> Uh, I never said I wanted to share my cupcakes. <laughs> I want all the cupcakes for myself. Um, <laughs> no, but, but more seriously, that's definitely something, you know, if you play with hypnosis to play with, you know, linking a flavor to something pleasurable or to change the way that something tastes. So like maybe like when you kiss your partner's body, their skin tastes like chocolate. You can do all kinds of stuff with hypnosis. Um, how about scent? Oh, scent. That's another good one too. Uh, you know, both of us being primal, I think our, our sense of scent, pardon the, wordplay there tends to be a little enhanced. Uh, So, you know, one of my favorites is to be able to uh, provide a variety of different scents to my partner. Um, You know, whether it's kind of my musky, sweaty, sawdust ridden scent, which, you know, some people uh, seem to enjoy or, something a little more intimate, like uh, the smell of bubble bath, for example. I know that can be a little triggering for you in, in a good way. 
And then, you know, for me, one of my favorite scents is, you know, again, going back to that oral um, fetish that I have when my head gets down there and being able to to smell, in particular, your scent uh, is very arousing for me. And I think it's important to note that in our sort of animal brain, scent is a trigger for memory. And so most people have had this experience. A a non-sexual example would be, you know, one day I was in a restaurant and I was standing in this restaurant and I just smelled this very distinct perfume that my grandmother used to wear. And she's been gone for many years now, but we were very close. And it's an older perfume and it's a more distinct scent. And when it hit my nose, I could not help but turn and like look over my shoulder and I almost expected her to be standing there. And then of course it it was another elderly woman who was obviously using the same perfume. (laughs) And I'm standing in the middle of a restaurant and I have tears streaming down my face and, you know, but it can just be such a trigger for memory, for emotion. And once you understand that you can use scent to start to create associations. So I'm going to talk about this a lot, probably, while we're talking about sensual BDSM, but step one is sort of awareness of the senses, awareness of all of these things. And then step two, a little bit more advanced is control is using these things, manipulating them with intent. So, you know, you talked about Mac body scent, you know, and just sort of like recognizing your partner's deodorant or cologne or soap or the smell of their skin and the way that a room smells after you've been having sex in it is recognizable. Or maybe you're going to start to use intent and use an essential oil. And, you know, maybe you're utilizing a little bit of deprivation and they can't see, but they can smell that scent and they know what's coming because you've tied it to, okay, when you smell cloves, I'm feeling particularly sadistic today. And if you smell peppermint, it's going to be a sweeter session. So you can start to create associations and form those scent memories. Leather is a really powerful one. And maybe you know what your partner's leather belt smells like. And so when you smell that leather being run under your nose, you know that your ass is in for a spanking. It sounds a little bit like you're talking from experience there. Um, Plead the fifth. So... (laughs) You do have a really soft old belt. Did it fall apart? I haven't seen it for a while. I feel like there was a specific belt, but it's been replaced. Yes, sadly, it had to go to leather belt heaven because it fell apart and couldn't be repaired. Maybe you should have saved it just for like naughties, even if it wouldn't hold your pants up anymore. Yeah, so really powerful. And I definitely think that scent and taste are probably the two most overlooked senses because everybody's thinking like, I want to get right to the naughty bits, to the, you know, the touching of the business. (laughs) And, you know, it's really important to not ignore them if you want to make a scene sensual. So moving on to sound, tell me about sound. Well, I I think for many people, sound is probably the second most prevalent sense. And, you know, you can use it in a variety of ways. For me, I love to use 
sound when I deprive my partner of sight because I think it builds anticipation. But for me, I think, you know, one of my favorite sounds obviously is hearing my partner's uh, sounds of pleasure. That's the most arousing for me. But, you know, there are a variety of other uh, sounds that also, you know, trigger me. Uh, For example, hearing uh, a candle being lit or hearing a leather crop kind of swish through the air. Those are also uh, kind of arousing for me, even though I'm usually the one doing uh, those things, uh, either wielding the crop or lighting the candle. Right, because it it makes a memory. So, you know, when I think about sound, and, and you stole the words right out of my mouth when you said anticipation, I think about things like hearing the footsteps on the floor. I think of music being a cue for something that the scene is about to begin or an indication of my partner's mood or my mood for my partner. The sound of my partner's voice can be incredibly arousing and humans do all these things with their voices where they change their tone and they have a certain inflection that is a hint as to what is about to happen a door opening or closing, the impact of an implement against the floor, you know, or against your partner's palm, all of these things can be clues and can heighten arousal, can heighten anticipation. And we're going to dig more into deprivation later. But, you know, especially if something else is gone, like if you can't see what's coming, people automatically start to strain with their ears to hear what's coming. And, you know, in a movie or in... (laughs) In real life, hopefully you won't have to experience this, but you know, the shucking of a shotgun is a very distinct noise and it creates a very distinct reaction because everybody has heard that sound. It's instantly recognizable. And so with sound, be distinct. Yeah. So again, you know, if you're new to sensory play or sensual BDSM, You want to first just start to take notice of all these things and then again, start to use them with intent, with purpose. And by the time you get to an advanced level, you'll be achieving a total mind-fucking situation. So I wanted to address those senses first because they are the ones that tend to be ignored a little bit more often. And um, I think next, you know, we'll talk a little bit about sight. So with sight, people do things sort of automatically. I mean, they look at a partner and they think, oh, that person is sexy, you know, or they have certain physical attributes sometimes that they find attractive or they start to modify their own appearance. They do things like do their hair or put on makeup or choose a sexy set of lingerie Um, But moving beyond that, I start to think about things like setting the scene and how important it is for your play space to have a certain vibe or a certain look to set the mood for what's about to happen. Do you want to say anything about sort of visual or or sight? So, you know, when when it comes to vision, it's not surprising. We are, you know, we evolved to be very visual creatures. Vision was our primary defense mechanism and uh, or i should say early warning system it was our primary way to find food 
as we evolved and as we uh, adapted. So it's not surprising that vision for us is one of the most significant sexual stimuli. You know, being able to stimulate that sense can create very powerful reactions in our body. So for me, you know, I, I'm, I like the mystery in my vision. So I, for me, it's much hotter to see somebody dressed in very sexy lingerie than to see them naked oftentimes because they have that little air of mystery. And, and I know it's, it's setting up that anticipation and, and I know what's coming, but you know, the, the areas that I think I find appealing visually on my partners probably are not the same as others. I, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not uh, a boob guy. I'm not necessarily a leg guy. I'm not necessarily a butt guy. Um, for me, it's more overall, I think that, that glow of health and well being for me that I think is, I find more stimulating, as well as, you know, there's a certain curve that a particular someone who happens to be in this segment has in her back that I really, I don't know what it is about it, but it just drives me crazy when I see it. Oh, daddy. And, you know, taking this back into the realm of real play with, you know, real sort of examples, you know, as he mentioned, daddy really likes in particular fishnets. He has this thing for fishnets. And so I know that if I put them on and I often will buy them in different styles or colors, one that they're going to be shredded to pieces because he likes doing that particularly with his teeth. But I know that if I put those on, it's absolutely going to drive him wild and I could be completely naked otherwise, but you know, it's not covering anything. It's not creating a sense of mystery and it's just adding that little something that turns him on. And you know, I think back to some of the play that we've done and even one of the first times that it was actually the first time that we ever played. And I did this very sexy dance to music. And so like the music was playing and it was creating a vibe and we had some like nice mood lighting going on. Lighting is really important. You know, if you have really harsh like fluorescent lights, for me personally, that's a migraine trigger. It's miserable. But you know, thinking about your lighting, thinking about, you know, the the way that your space looks. So we had some kind of like dim mood lighting, we had some music playing, and I was doing the sexy dance on the countertop, you know, as if we were in a club and doing this very slow, sensual unwrapping. And by shedding each layer, I was building this sense of anticipation for what was to come before he ever even really put his hands on me. Yeah. And oh, yeah. Oh, yes. I <laughs> just, just, uh, you know, sitting here listening to you go through that and replaying the memory in my mind was enough to, um, <clears throat> make, make blood flow in, in other places. Uh, yeah. It's, and actually, I, I wrote an entire piece of erotica that's on Fat Life, uh, about that, about unwrapping you. But yeah, that was, uh, that was very visually appealing. And, you know, we, we touched on some of the other senses besides touch. That was before we were even touching that were sort of folded into that scene. 
And all of these things can be overlapped with hypnosis. I always love to mention that. So when we're talking about a sensual dance, and I'm I'm hoping that at some point I can find the right venue to do a sensual dance class that involves hypnosis. Because one of my favorite games is sort of to do this erotic dance. And, you know, my movement dances my partner into trance. And then, you know, as the music plays and as I dance, they continue to sink further down. And then I give them a a suggestion that when I stop the music, they'll basically have an orgasm. And come up for air a little bit and then I play the music again and it pulls them right back down. And, you know, you can obviously switch this back and forth. You can make it so that you both have an orgasm when the music changes. The person who's watching the visual show can be the one to control the music. They can give the dancer suggestions. So you can definitely take a lot of these things and then sort of amplify them. I love overlapping sensual BDSM and hypnosis. So we've covered the other um, senses, but the elephant still in the room is touch. And this is the one that people jump to, which is why I saved it a little bit towards the end. And I think with touch, one of the things to realize is that it's not just about like genital stimulation. There are so many different kinds of touch and so many different types of kinesthetic sensations, things like temperature. So tell us about touch. It really, as you said, uh, incorporates a, a wide spectrum of possibilities. Absolutely nothing to do with touching someone's genitals. There are so many different erogenous zones that we all have, and they vary from individual to individual. You know, for some, it's a light touch that works best. For others, they need that very firm, muscular grasp that says you're not going anywhere. So just roll over and give it up. Mm. (laughs) I think we know which side of the spectrum you're on. (laughs) Um, (gasps) You know, and even not even so much touch, but what touches another's skin. So for example, you know, for many people, many of the partners that I've had feeling my hot breath on the back of their neck is very stimulating, which involves, it doesn't involve any touching on my part other than, you know, the air that's coming out of my mouth. Uh, for others, you know, biting, impact play, you know, there's so many varieties of, of touch out there that it, it isn't any wonder really why it's the, the sense that most people kind of jump to. Uh, for me personally, uh, I love to dole out impact. <laughs> it's just, it's, it's one of my things, uh, whether it's spanking, whether it's with a paddle or a crop or a belt, uh, you know, as we, we discussed earlier, um, it, it's just, I don't know, the, the, the feeling, the sensation, of the impact and the colors that it leaves. And of course those lovely bruises that it eventually turns to. Um, it's just, yeah, it, it really, um, <clears throat> really gets my motor running. But, you know, in addition to the impact, you know, it's kind of 
the the fire and ice approach, I also like doing a lot of light touches, uh, particularly when there's some sensory deprivation involved because I feel that that builds anticipation. But I know that also doesn't work for everyone too. So that was, that was a lot. (laughs) Um, And, you know, obviously you've touched on some of the things that you particularly like, but making this sort of accessible for everybody. I think that when we get into talking about touch and pain and deprivation, this is the section where a little bit more skill is sometimes involved. And so it's definitely accessible for everyone. I mean, at a very beginner level, you can use ice cubes on your partner's body and contrast that with a warm mouth. You can give a sensual massage. You can do a barehanded spanking. You can use feathers. You could do hair pulling. And then, you know, a little bit more advanced, maybe putting ice or a cold toy inside of the body in a fun spot. Things like low temperature massage oil candles, even impact, you know, that's accessible, flogging, paddling, cropping, like caning, belting, you know, but if you're learning, I highly recommend that you take a class specifically on how to do these things. This is where you start to get into the territory where there could be safety concerns or you could cause injury. And impact is something that we've talked about on the show, but it's definitely something that requires, I think, a full class and some practice. Um, generally practice on yourself or on a non-human object before you are, you know, taking some kind of impact toy to a partner. Um, But things like pressure, things like clamps, um, things like tickling, things, you know, we're going to talk about tickling a little bit later with Panda. But, you know, all of these things, um, these are sort of somewhere in the middle, but this is where you start to get into the territory where you really need to learn some skills before you do these things. And then really advanced, these things are still sensual, knife play, use of fire, heavy impact, genital impact, needles, toys that could potentially draw blood like vampire gloves, higher temperature, but still body safe wax. So remember, it's not about the level of pain that makes something advanced. It's about the skill to use it safely. So definitely, you know, recommend that when we get into exploring these things that, you know, you learn these skills individually from someone who knows what they're doing. And I'd also like to make a note about pain in general. Pain is a kinesthetic sensation, but it's not just one thing. It could be good or it could be bad. Bad only really being something in my mind that causes actual harm, you know, injury that's not intended, but you know, it can be pleasurable. It can be unpleasant. It can be small pain or it can be large and it can be very dramatically different based on a person's headspace. It can be sharp, dull, stingy, thuddy. It can be quick or prolonged. You know, it can be something that lingers into the next day when you stretch your sore muscles and you feel like you've been run over by a truck. I like to joke that I've been run over by a Mack truck and um, you're sore and achy, but it feels really good and it reminds you of the night before. So you know, just touch is not just one thing. It's definitely not just genital stimulation. It's definitely not just, you know, pleasure or pain where those are narrow things. They are a spectrum. Those things can be blended together. 
And the more of these things you can be aware of and master, again, with learning the appropriate skills, the more sensual your scene can be. And so I want to kind of talk a little bit now because we've alluded to it a bunch of times about deprivation. It's not a sense in itself. It's really the act of taking a sense or multiple senses away. And so let's talk about that a little bit because I think it's an important part. Yes, it absolutely is. And, uh, you know, obviously when it comes to deprivation, what most people immediately jump to is taking away sight. And that's, of course, because we're visual creatures. And for me, I, I love doing that. I love throwing a blindfold on my partner and just building that anticipation through using a lot of the other senses and making sure that, um, you know, we're really creating that scene in their mind without using anything coming from sight or, you know, whatever sense you're depriving them of. Right. And, you know, sensory deprivation Again, you know, there's a spectrum that involves different levels of skill. And if you're going to be taking senses away or taking away somebody's ability to speak, that requires a separate and detailed negotiation. You need to be thinking about, do we need to have a hand signal for safe words? Or, you know, there are so many elements to negotiate when you're going to be taking a sense away, but making sure that you always have a way to communicate with your partner would be the biggest thing that I would say to focus on. And then, you know, keeping in mind that certain types of deprivation, I mean, they can be triggering, it can cause a fear response, or some of them can even restrict breath. So things like gags or hoods, you know, for somebody who has asthma or who has um, a problem with being claustrophobic, These are all things that need to be discussed well in advance. And so one, to be aware of your partner's limits and um, comfort level and two, you know, to have safety backup plans to accommodate or to, to plan for these things that you're going to be taking away. And so, you know, at a very basic level, maybe just take away one sense at a time, like doing a blindfold you know, that can be a really accessible way to do this. Or maybe you just want to put on a set of noise canceling headphones or earplugs, or just play really loud music that drowns out other sounds. These can all be things that can be deprivation in a way. Or it could be as simple as face that way and don't look at me. Keep looking at the wall and you're standing behind your partner. And so without putting anything on them, you are taking away their ability to see you or to see what's coming. And um, so that can be really fun. And then, you know, a little bit more advanced, you might be doing more than one sense. You might be doing something like a hood. And, you know, deprivation, again, it really adds an element of anticipation and suspense. And, you know, things that make it more advanced, increased length of time, the number of senses taken away, adding sensory deprivation plus bondage is significantly more advanced and requires additional safety protocol and negotiation. Sensory deprivation plus kinesthetic elements like impact, for example. So, you know, it definitely can be accessible to anyone, but again, you know, lots of negotiation, consent's really important. 
And something that you might think is really not a big deal, like taking someone's sight away with a blindfold, can for some people be triggering or scary. So just keep that in mind. I'm sorry. I'm still giggling over. Turn around. Don't look at me. Put your face in a corner because I can I can just I can see those words coming out of your mouth. If you were with a submissive, <laughs> I just I I know you well enough. I can just see that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I don't really consider myself to be a switch. I am on the receiving end of a lot of sensual BDSM when I play with my daddy in particular, but that is the only relationship that I have where the dynamic is with another person that's dominant to me. Generally, I like to be on the giving end and I'm a little bit of a sadist and I've talked about this a little bit, but my type of sadism isn't specifically focused on pain only. I really enjoy things like fear. I like anticipation. I like extreme frustration. And so, you know, this essential BDSM, when you get into adding an element of bondage, especially, which is a whole separate discussion, you know, for how to do that safely, but whether, you know, it's, it's rope or some kind of restraints or full body bind of some kind or hypnotic restraint, you know, knowing that my partner is at my mercy and that they can't move is already incredibly hot and starts to build that sense of anticipation. And then, you know, I like to take sensual BDSM all the way to mind fucking where I'm using all of these elements with intent. So, you know, the sound of my voice or my footsteps, I'm getting closer, or maybe they can't hear or see me at all. And I'm just running an implement down their back. And so they're feeling the sensation of that. And that's how they know what's coming. Or maybe they don't know at all because it's, you know, a heavy deprivation scene. So sensual BDSM can also be sadistic. And it can just, it's really, to me, again, it's a mind, body, spirit experience where you and your partner have the opportunity to completely tune out the rest of the world and just be sort of singularly Mm -hmm. present in that moment because you've taken control of them completely. Yes, absolutely. It is so much fun and I urge everyone to try it within their limits. And within your skill level. And again, you know, there are so many wonderful classes to take. We've mentioned so many different techniques and this is not really a how-to discussion. It's just meant to kind of spark ideas. But you know, each of these individual techniques could be an entire class, you know, talking about safety consent, but also just the fun things that you can do with these elements. And so if you want to get a little bit of everything, I highly recommend, you know, attending an event like a convention, a kink convention, where there are classes on all sorts of different subjects. And I've mentioned this, I think previously, but coming up in May 2022, Mac and I are actually going to be teaching about sensual BDSM at Kink School Convention, which is actually accessible to everyone because it's virtual. So kinkschool.ca, you can get tickets and um, you can participate in this virtual event. Panda and HypnoStory are also going to be teaching. So I'm just plugging that event a little bit again. It is going to be in... Um, May of 2022. And sensual BDSM specifically is on the table for discussion with Mac and I, and that will be a little bit more of a full class. So any last closing thoughts about sensual BDSM before we kind of close it out? That class is going to be a lot of fun. So 
If you can attend, please do. You will like it. I promise. One of the nice things about a class where people can see us is that we're able to do demonstrations of some of these things. And so we can we can really show you physically some of the practical applications. And so we're still developing the class, but that's definitely something I always like to include live demos in any of my classes. So I'm excited about it. So yeah, I, I would urge... Um, you know, anyone who has any interest in sensual BDSM to attend that class and, you know, anybody who has interest in kink education overall, uh, it's going to be a great conference. There are a lot of uh, very skilled individuals who are teaching. So I guess that's my plug on top of your plug. All right. Well, thanks for having this talk with me. I think it's uh, it's just really one of my favorite subjects, favorite things to talk about. So I'm excited to share it with our listeners. And I know you're going to be back, even if I had to <laughs> <laughs> you up and um, plop a microphone down in front of you. It could happen. <laughs> thanks for doing this with me. And we will be moving on to our next topic. All right. Next up, I'm here with Puppet Sheethey. Puppet is a writer of erotic fiction who has also led workshops on kink and disability and is a member of the HypnoKink community. Welcome to the show. How are you today? Thank you. I'm doing well. I'm glad to be here. I'm really excited for the topic we're going to talk about today, and I know we're going to focus a little bit on the very exciting topic of writing erotica, especially queer and kink erotica, but we've been talking a lot on this season about kink roles and identities. Do you want to just tell everybody a little bit more about yourself in terms of those things? Yeah, so I have a few. Uh, In terms of my general power dynamic, I am an owned uh, switch. My owner is my late Ru- lady Ruetha. Love her dearly. I do sometimes service top for her. Uh, in terms of other kink activities, I love being both a rigger and a rope bunny. I very much love bottoming for impact play. And I am a hypno switch who tends to be on the subby side. But I can certainly be the test and the top uh, if that's what the people I'm playing with are looking for. Excellent. Thank you for sharing. So kind of digging into our, our main topic, I always like to start with, you know, why do you do it? Why do you love it? Why do you personally write erotica? There's a quote from Adam Savage that I like to use a lot, which is you have to do the thing that you can't not do. And that's always been writing for me. I just almost as almost from the time I knew what writing stories was or telling stories, I started doing it. And as I got older, erotica was not just a great way to kind of, fantasize and look at what turned me on, but it turned out was kind of how I started playing with my own identity. Uh, Not just my gender transition, which eventually followed, but you know, what do I really want? Who do I want to be? What makes me hot, you know, about myself or what kind of situations do I want to be in? And that basically is why I do it because it lets me have so much fun. 
I love that you touched on sort of identity formation and how erotica can really be a tool for that. And for me personally, words have always come naturally. However, you know, during a time in my life when I didn't really have any in-person kink going on, I probably read, I kid you not, like hundreds of novels that were erotica, that were sexy. Eventually, I sort of ran out of things to read that really fit my kinks. And I realized that the stuff that I was into was a little bit niche. It was a little bit of a small market. And I just wanted there to be more things out there that represented what I was into. And I was like, you know what? I can't just sit here and wait for it. I should just write it myself. Yeah, that's a lot of it is, you know, the things that were interesting me, the things that got me really going. For one thing, I am a bigger girl. And the market for erotica involving bigger women and even bigger men is, I don't want to say slim, but it's definitely niche. So stories about somebody who looks like me and, you know, fucks like me bluntly uh, are kind of hard to find things that involve people with my body type being sexy. And so that was definitely a reason why I had to kind of roll my own and uh, interested in hypno kink. And I found several things that kind of got my attention and I really enjoyed, but sometimes I would be like, but what about this? And I would go look and didn't necessarily find it. So I had to say, well, shit, I guess I better write some. And people connected with it because it turns out that other people were looking for the same sort of things and hadn't been able to find it. Absolutely. I definitely think that when you read something that resonates with you and when you see yourself represented in literature, but especially when it comes to sexual identity, it really can be empowering and it can help with feelings of isolation and feeling like, maybe I'm kind of weird that I'm into this stuff. Like, nobody else seems to be into this stuff. And chances are somebody is, but um, chances are many people are. There's just not a lot of writing about it. It's one of the reasons I encourage people to write. You know, if you feel like there's something that's missing, you don't sit back and wait for it. You know, go for it, write it yourself. And um, for me personally, I want to say I had only ever read in all of those novels, maybe one series where polyamory and pansexuality was heavily represented by Mm. the protagonist specifically. And I think that it's becoming a little bit more mainstream to have novels and, and stories that sort of address those things with sometimes like with side characters or you know, it's still not that common to come across a protagonist who resembles myself. And I'm also really into a lot of darker kinks, a lot of CNC stuff and age play. And I think that even sometimes within the kink world, those things are a little bit taboo. And so it's really fun for me to put them on a page. Yeah, absolutely. So in addition to kind of writing kink erotica, 
your work often has a sort of like supernatural or paranormal component, right? Quite a bit of it. Uh, I found, well, for one thing, you know, that moment you talked about of, oh shit, there are other people into this too. Um, I really liked stories involving like transformations or possessions, uh, stories that involved fantasy creatures. And it turns out there is a market for that. Uh, so that was a very easy thing for me to kind of slide into and play around with all these ideas that I'd had, you know, especially, you know, we live in the golden age of monster fucking right now. So thinking about, you know, what would it be like to have, you know, a Lamia girlfriend, what would it be like to have, you know, a joyfriend of indeterminate eldritch being and gender <laughs> and playing around with those ideas and thinking about what they might get from a relationship with a human. Uh, it's very fun. Yay for monster fucking. <laughs> you know, I have always loved the idea of extreme power exchange. And I think that when you bring a supernatural being into the mix that has superpowers, you know, a lot of erotica with power exchange focuses on things like financial power exchange, for example, like where the dominant type has fabulously wealthy or um, sometimes it's just a matter of physical strength. But when you bring something like supernatural powers into the mix, it's really an extreme sort of power exchange. And I've really been into sort of like vampire and shifter erotica novels for a long time. And it, it's interesting because I definitely, in my own writing, try to draw a clear line. I also am somebody with a pagan spiritual practice, and I, I practice neo-druidry. And sometimes in my writing, I really like to represent that in a very genuine way, you know, humans with an energy practice or spiritual practice. And then sometimes they just kind of like to go wild and have it be totally supernatural. Was there something in your personal life that drew you to supernatural writing or... I would say some of it is that I also uh, was kind of introduced to uh, different pagan and neo-pagan uh, practices as I was growing up, just because I lived in a city with a fairly active pagan community. Uh, and also the fact that uh, my parents really were great about they loved science fiction and fantasy. They collected books, they collected movies, and they shared that with me from a very young age. And so, you know, like one of my formative memories was this road trip we took where my dad got the BBC radio version of the Hobbit on cassette, 12 cassettes, which was a huge deal at the time. And putting that on the car uh, radio as we drove and kind of building that world in my head as I listened to the actors and actresses performing and, you know, later reading the Lord of the Rings, going out and reading like the dragon and the George and getting into things like, um, Ben Bova and Heinlein and later like Anne McCaffrey and Kim Stanley Robinson and all of those. And so that really kind of primed the pump because these ideas, these worlds, these creatures had always been a thing for me. And as an adult, you know, I play 
D&D and Vampire and other games. And so <laughs> that's definitely, you know, kind of put ideas in my head sometimes for things you wouldn't necessarily do with a random person sitting at the table, but, you know, scenario ideas for a partner or just a play idea that seems really hot. Um, it, it definitely all kind of builds into that mix. And I have a lot of uh, good memories of staying up late on the couch with a monster movie on like, like my uh, family is from Ohio and I grew up kind of between Cleveland and Columbus a lot and like watching Goulardi or Fritz the Night Owl and a monster movie or a cheesy sci-fi movie on at like 11 o'clock midnight and just kind of vibing with that. Absolutely. And I, I think that it's so funny because we write erotica, but our childhood experiences can be so formative just in who we are as people that sometimes it bleeds through a little bit. And, you know, my parents read to us really religiously when we were young, and we were actually really not allowed to watch very much of anything on television. And so from a very young age, I just sort of learned the power of using my imagination and sort of having a story play like a film in my mind. And I, I really think that that has allowed me to be a more creative person to have to have form those images on my own without watching them on a screen. You know, when I was growing up, my bedtime stories were passages from the Odyssey, that sort of thing, you know, the true unabridged version. And, you know, we had some children's literature in the mix too, but really, I was exposed to sort of classic literature at a very young age. And I think that that is when my capacity for forming a really clear fantasy in my mind began to develop. And you also touched on something really interesting, which is something I actually recently taught a class about, and it's how a story becomes a scene and how sort of reading or writing erotica can lead to better partner communication, better scene development. Do you want to say anything about how sort of writing or reading erotica has led to better scenes overall in real life? Yeah. And sometimes vice versa, actually. I have a profile out there on a site called Read Only Mind that I'm sure you're probably going to link to with the show. There's a story that I wrote called Snatch and Grab that is almost entirely based on a real life scene that I did with uh, one of my partners and our, I don't necessarily want to say if we're partners with the other person, but I think we're somewhere between like dating and other stuff. <laughs> Sometimes it gets a little complicated, but um, that scene uh, was so much fun. Uh, we basically plotted it. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't want to spoil too much of the story, but essentially uh, my partner has a little bit of a thing for kidnapping and was coming back from a trip to see family. And so we picked her up and our mutual acquaintance pulled out a rag from her duffel bag that had been soaked in some lavender essential oil. And as we were talking, just kind of interrupted the conversation to say, does this smell like chloroform to you? And she's so wonderfully suggestible that she was just out like a light. 
And from there, we just went and had a lot of fun. So events like that, but also, you know, being able to put a fantasy or an idea into words and then say, you know, this is something I would like to try doing with you and being able to use that negotiation, uh, use the story maybe as a framework and say, you know, it doesn't have to be exactly like this, but this is kind of the headspace I want to be in, or this is kind of the end result I had in mind and let them give their thoughts, let them share their input. Maybe they have had similar fantasies or maybe they have a similar idea and they're like, Hey, what if we did that? But also, you know, add this or, you know, what if I don't just, you know, tie you up and, you know, play with you with some other people, but what if you're blindfolded and you don't know who's doing what to you? Uh, Those can always add so much excitement and just levels that maybe you didn't think about. And I think that's great. That's such a hot scene. And for folks who are listening who are not really big into hypnokink or don't know too much about it yet, um, when we say suggestible, we're usually referring to a hypnotic suggestion. So when you have something like essential oils on a rag with hypnotic suggestion, you can actually go and create the idea in your hypnotic subject's mind that that really is a rag with chloroform. And Um, The class that we taught recently with my partner, Mac, we talked a lot about that sort of thing. And it's really funny because we actually do a lot of capture kidnap fantasy too. And we touched on how it can really be the basis, one, for fantasy sharing, but also for negotiation in that, you know, we have at times, if we were going to do a really intense scene written erotica to exchange as a sort of fantasy exchange and then read the other person's fantasy and use that as the basis for negotiation. Like this thing you wrote was really hot. That thing is a little bit outside of my comfort zone and kind of used it as a way to plan for an upcoming scene, both for fantasy sharing and negotiation. Yeah. And I think that's fantastic because sometimes it's, really hard for us to put what we want out verbally. But if you get that opportunity to just write it down, it gets so much easier. And, you know, when we talk about that, I'm always encouraging people to learn some creative writing techniques and to practice with it and to play with it. And it doesn't have to be a serious thing, but even if you have no intention of ever writing a novel, having that kind of skill can make for better sexting, better fantasy sharing. It really can enhance your play, especially if you're into hypnosis where words are so important. Absolutely agree. Now, we talked a little bit about this, but sort of the idea of creating an image in your mind when you're reading or writing. And I personally have a preference for erotica to visual pornography because I really like to envision what I want to envision. And I feel like it's so much more personal that way. And I feel like it sort of allows me to sort of step into that story. You know, reading and writing is sort of like a transfer me. I can kind of insert myself into, you know, the storyline. And 
I'm wondering, because I know everybody's different, do you feel the same way about writing or do you feel like erotica has some kind of edge on visual erotic art? I would say that I am a person who has a very visual mind, which is ironic because I cannot draw to save my life. But it's very easy for me to read something and get a really clear picture in my head or listen to a story uh, and kind of imagine the scene. And so I'm kind of in that same boat where a written story or a uh, less visual presentation is sometimes more erotic uh, and more interesting to me um, because I can kind of fill in the blanks and our brains are really powerful creatures. They do all this kind of work that sometimes having the visuals takes away a little of the fun, if that makes sense. Um, you kind of look at it and you're like, oh, okay. Whereas if they're describing, like, you know, it's one thing to watch two people, you know, maybe screwing on a bed and he's holding her hand above her, uh, her head, but if you read a story where they talk about how he's just passionately, you know, pressing himself into her and, you know, grabbing her wrists and, and pinning them to the bed behind her head. And all of a sudden that's a very different, very hot vibe than simply watching somebody do it. And especially because most camera work in your average porn is not exactly what you'd call solid cinematography. Um, <laughs> so that's also kind of in there, mm-hmm. but you know, I think it gives us the power to let our brain fill in the blanks for us. And personally, I do get a lot out of that. Uh, there are some times when watching is very hot and it can be what my brain is interested in that moment. And I'm actually a really big fan of some erotic photographers. Um, I really like the work of Coop and some of the people kind of in that same style. Uh, but sometimes you really just want to read something and imagine something nice in your head and get off to it. For sure. And I dabble a little bit in erotic photography as well. It's not my primary medium. Writing is always going to be my thing. And I also sometimes dabble in acrylic. (laughs) My paintings, I personally think they're terrible. (laughs) But um, like you, I have a very clear image in my mind of what I want. And when I can't translate it with paint, I get frustrated. And I don't find that I have that difficulty when it comes to written words. And so I definitely think it kind of comes down to sort of what brain do you have to start with. And I think about a class that I took on hypnosis where they were talking about sort of visual hypnosis and hypnotic hallucination. And they had this picture of apples. And on one end, you just sort of have like an outline of an apple. And then you have a grayscale one. And then they get progressively more realistic. And it's sort of a scale for when you just imagine an apple, where do you fall on the scale? And so I'm definitely always on the fully formed apple 
And in my brain, it's very realistic. And in fact, you know, when I write, I talk about it almost being like a trance state where I'm stepping in. And if my character is sipping a glass of red wine, you know, I am also enjoying that glass of Tempranillo with notes of licorice and leather. (laughs) And so um, I definitely think that when I talk to people who are new writers or who want to develop the skill, maybe it's not the easiest thing for them. I also refer them to visual art and say, start there, you know, look at a piece of visual art that really appeals to you and then work on holding that image in your mind. And then sort of imagine your story like a a movie in your brain that you're stepping into where you are the character and you're going to sit down and touch things and smell things and look around and sort of be present in that scene and then come back and try to write. Um, So that would kind of be my next question for you too, for somebody who's just sort of dipping their toes into writing, whether it's erotica or just any kind of, you know, fantasy storytelling, what would you suggest for them to get them started? So one of the things I think can be a really good tool, especially if you want to kind of figure out how to translate visual into words and vice versa, is pick up a comic book you like. I'm personally a big fan of like the Sandman or Warren Ellis's Transmetropolitan, even if he's turned out to be kind of a bastard or a TV show you like, and then go see if you can find a script for an episode or an issue. A lot of times the writers will have example scripts on their websites for shows or movies. A lot of times you can purchase the script or find it online and kind of take that and you can break down like, What are the things in here that I like that the artist did? How did the writer suggest or describe this scene? You know, what do they talk about going on in a panel or what do they talk about going on in an action sequence? And then kind of use that to, you know, study that and kind of reverse engineer it for yourself. That's a really good idea. I also talk about sort of like being, either very descriptive or deliberately vague, but doing that with intent. And so sometimes it can be fun to play a game, for example, where, and I've done this in the class, where we have people get a prompt and it could be a word like chocolate or sponge or hammer and nails or whatever, something that's non-erotic and to try to describe it as if it isn't an erotic object without naming what it is. And so kind of being deliberately vague and enhancing their sexy language skills. And then you can also sort of do that in reverse or you can, you know, you can use visual art to work on your descriptive language skills for when you really do want to be specific by looking at an image and then trying to describe that in graphic detail. And I mm. think that that can really be helpful. Yeah, absolutely. So you and I both have um, some new books coming out. Um, on my end, it is the next installment in my Turn the Key series. It will be book four, Banish the Light. And like all books in the series, it features pan, poly, kinky protagonist. All of them are queer inclusive. All of the books in the series have an element of either hypnosis or magic. Usually the magic is in the true pagan sense, and they all feature new characters. So this time around, it's going to touch on where vampire fetish meets blood play meets the sort of saying sigh or, you know, quote, real vampire community culture, which is a separate thing. And it does have a heavy emphasis on both hypnosis and energy exchange. So 
Banish the Light. You can look for it probably in April. It's not set in stone, but in the next month or so, it's definitely going to be coming out. And if people are interested, they can sign up for my mailing list at sunnyleemain.com for updates on the release. And um, more importantly, you have a book coming out called Orphans Cry, and I believe it's coming out this month, February 2022, right? That's right. It actually comes, as we're recording this, it comes out tomorrow. So I'm very hype about that. Yay. <laughs> so it is the first book in a series called Sing For Me. Uh, it's currently a trilogy, though I have some ideas. And if the books do well enough, I would be thrilled to write more and tell more stories in this setting. It is a story about werewolves uh, who are queer and turns out are poly, though that is not something we get into straight off the bat. And there is a bit of magic that is going to start coming into play more in the second and third books than in the first. But if it catches your eye and you decide you're interested, you know, that might be a reason to take a look and pick up the second or third book when they come out. The first book is a lot of world building, but it's also done through the eyes of somebody who basically never realized there was a community of people like her out there to kind of tie this back into some of our earlier discussion. And so she's dealing with both the relief, but also the culture shock and especially trying to find out, okay, how does this community work? What are the expectations? What are the laws? What am I supposed to be doing? And how do I make it? and survive and thrive in this. So I had a lot of fun with that and I like poking around at a lot of tropes. So, you know, there's that, you know, horrible confession you see in a lot of these kind of stories or movies where it's like, I've got this terrible dark secret. I'm a werewolf. And instead of the other person being terrified or running away, the other person's just like, well, yeah, I knew that I am too. And you know, let's just go from there. So I've had a lot of fun with that. I've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed writing this. It's been a lot of fun to build this world and build these characters up. And I'm looking forward to sharing them. Well, I have pre-ordered it myself. I'm excited to read it. And I definitely think you're describing a moment that when it happens in real life, you know, meeting someone who sees the world the way you do or who shares an identity, it really can be magical. So I'm super excited for it. Orphans Cry. And if people want to download it, where can they go? Uh, The book is available on the publisher's website, JMS Books. It is also available on Amazon, and I believe as of tomorrow will be available through Smashwords, uh, the Barnes & Noble Nook Store, and other ebook retailers. And then a print edition will be available, uh, I want to say, in September, but I'm waiting for the publisher to confirm that. We're kind of waiting on the print schedules to sort that in. Very exciting news. And do you want to share the name that you've published that book under? Yeah. So my uh, name for the publishing is Jamie Wagner, J-A-Y-M-I-E-W-A-G-N-E-R. And I'm perfectly okay with that. I also have some other short stories that were published through JMS Books. 
And I'm in a couple of collections that are available on Amazon from uh, Jay Willowbay. And I actually will be having another story getting published in June in the Heckenlude Transerotica collection and another fantasy story that will be getting published by Outland Publishing as part of their Never Too Old to Save the World collection. So there's a few things out there that's coming up pretty soon that I'm excited about. Wonderful. Lots of really hot and inclusive erotica coming your way. So I hope our listeners will check out the books we've got coming up. And thanks so much for having this conversation with me. It was really nice to have you on the show and hopefully we'll have you on again in the future. You too. I was so happy to do this and I look forward to the chance to come back. Panda, you're on the air. You're on the air. Quick, <laughs> go, go. Tickling, tickling. Oh God. Oh God. <laughs> I'm scared. <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, all right. I am back with Panda Pet. We are really um, looking forward to talking about one of her favorite kinks. It's not something that I know a ton about. So I'm going to be learning a little bit along with our listeners. And that is one of the really fun things about this show. How are you today? Sleepy. <laughs> it is getting Sorry. late. We getting We do late. tend to chat. <laughs> It's true. It's true. It's not like we've been talking for what, like three hours is fine. I know we've been like really sidetracked talking largely about naughty things, a little bit about vaginas. Yeah. (laughs) Some gay shit. Yep. Yep. And um, okay. We are, are we focused and ready? Yeah. Okay. So today we're going to talk about one of your favorite things, which is tickling. Yes. And so anytime we bring a new topic on the show, I like to say, you know, why do you love it? I love to start with that. For me, tickling was my very first kink, actually. Um, I was very drawn to it. Uh, I've been drawn to it pretty much my whole life. It's something I really enjoyed. As like an active adult in the community, I really enjoy the tickling kink because of the feeling of helplessness it produces. That's something I'm really into in general. I mean, like, like I say all the time, everything I do pretty much goes back to power um, and like loss of control. So tickling really isn't any different for me. Bottoming to tickling is about that loss of control. It's about like not knowing what the person is going to do next. Like I like the, more torturous side of tickling which is something we'll get into like there's like a specific like subset called like tickle torture uh which is really like what i'm into um which like really just like gets you like pretty out of control and breathless and your brain kind of goes away in a super similar um way to like subspace or hypnosis where like you're just not really thinking that much and you're like really overloaded by the sensations that are happening to you in that moment and so i mean you've touched on a couple things you've touched on how it can be almost like a sadistic kind of play how there could be some cnc or force involved i know it can also be something that can be considered a i mean it's a sensation it can be part of sensual play do you want to just talk a little bit about how it sort of overlaps with other kinks? Because I feel like by itself, when you just think about it, it sounds like it's a really sort of 
niche kink, but I feel like it can really overlap with a lot of other things. Yeah. Um, it can be a part of sensation play in that like in tickling, we use a lot of tools a lot of the time. So like brushes, feathers, um, combs like super random shit that just happens to tickle um so like that could go into like a number of different categories like it could even go into like knife play like if you like really gently and in a controlled fashion like really gently use like a knife tip like that'll hecking tickle for me um I wouldn't recommend doing that, but like, I'm just saying like as an extreme example of like how far this can go. Um, But yeah, sensation play definitely overlaps a lot. Bondage overlaps a lot, especially when you go into like the tickle torture side of things. Um, But in general, like, you know, when people get tickled in life in general, we tend to get pretty flaily and like attack the person who was doing the tickling. Uh, So the bondage is like, equal parts for like the safety of the top and also to restrain the bottom in a way that makes them feel helpless. That's a good point. Involuntary reactions are a thing. And if you're going to engage in some kind of play that's likely to elicit involuntary bodily reactions, really you should take precautions and be prepared for it. Yeah. And I'll go over that in considerations as well. Um, It can also go into like role play, humiliation, degradation. Uh, It could go into like a really extreme category and do like, and be involved with like age play if you're like doing it like with a diaper and like doing it until they pee themselves which like is a thing that i've heard about as a fantasy other people have although honestly i've never heard about someone actually doing that um there's like a lot of gamification that you can do with it um to involve like board games or twister or like poker really like like anything, like any other kink you would gamify, you can gamify tickling as well. So I know that to some people who haven't really thought a lot about tickling or who haven't done it, this might sound a little strange, but I think it's actually probably more common than people would think. For me personally, tickling on the receiving end has always been a hard limit. And for me personally, you know, laughing really hard for an extended period of time, um, especially if I'm lying down, is a surefire way to trigger an asthma attack. And so it's just never something that's really been enjoyable to me. I mean, one, because I don't usually like to receive something that doesn't feel good to me in some way. And that doesn't mean pain. So I enjoy sometimes receiving pain because to me, pain is just another sensation and I do derive pleasure from it sometimes. But there are certain sensations that I just don't associate with pleasure or even pain. I just associate them with sort of with discomfort. And Mm. that's not something I enjoy receiving. Not really enjoying being on the receiving end of tickling. It hadn't really been something I had thought of doing as a top until sort of recently. (laughs) So recently we were doing some hypnosis stuff, Panda and I, and we did some experimentation with hypnotic tickling. And that's something that she really enjoys being on the receiving end of. And my inner sadist had a field day with it. And it wasn't pain. It wasn't like a big impact, but 
I could definitely see how using tickling could be sadistic, how it could be something that is really intense. It could be something that is forced. And so we only really did a little bit of it, but I definitely got a taste for how it can be fun to be on the giving end. So even though it's always been a hard limit in terms of receiving, it's something that I might consider exploring a little bit more in the future. (laughs) You're welcome. Uh (laughs) Uh, And it's funny because like Yoshi and HypnoStory will... uh, like use hypnotic tickling for me when I'm being like particularly willful or like particularly bratty and they want to like quote unquote punish me. They'll literally just say tickle torture and then snap and it's hypnotic tickles until they say release, which like is probably like the most like quote unquote punishment version of that that I've encountered because normally I really like tickling and like really enjoy playing with it in most cases, like, except for like, I find it annoying specifically in that case. Well, you know, that was one of the things that sort of appealed to me a little bit because I feel (laughs) like, (laughs) yeah. Um, As you learned, as I learned, (laughs) but um, yeah, because I mean, we both know that as a, a top, I'm a little bit bratty and like my sadistic streak is really, it's really very bratty and I really like to cause frustration. That's something that I really enjoy. And tickling is a really excellent tool for that. That's true. That's true. It is. But I understand why you wouldn't want to be on the receiving end. And a lot of people actually have tickling as a hard limit of theirs. Like it's really interesting to talk to people who are like, heavy on the masochistic side or like might do a lot of intense play that like I would never consider doing, but tickling is hard limit for them just because like, it's not a sensation that's pleasurable for them or like might bring up like family trauma or childhood trauma. So I will say this one thing to be really careful for here and to have like negotiation about uh, when you're doing tickling, because for a lot of people it might bring up like some unwanted memories um, just of like touch that they didn't really desire as a child, but that like other people thought like, oh, it's tickling, it's innocent, it's fun, and would do anyway. Absolutely. And limits are not always based on physical sensation that you don't want to receive. A lot of limits are based on emotional triggers. And so something that seems on the surface really innocent sometimes can sometimes be the worst type of trauma trigger for a person who has been affected by something like that. So um, definitely a consideration. And I guess on the other end of the spectrum, like or not the other end of the spectrum, really, but like in the same vein as like, don't judge people who have tickling as a hard limit. It's really interesting how many people just judge the tickling kink in general, or like think it's frivolous or stupid, or just like, really don't understand it, and don't care to understand it, which is fine. But also like, then don't kink shame it either. I was in a situation where I was teaching a tickling class with a friend of mine for like a general BDSM audience. And (laughs) there were a few people who were like, Oh, well it's just tickling. Like what's the big deal? Like why are like, 
one woman complained that it was like ruining her experience in the dungeon because she was trying to have this intense scene one time. And like, there was a bunch of laughter happening from another part of the dungeon with a tickling scene. And like, how dare they interrupt like her sacred space or something like that. But like, I think it's as respectable a kink as anything else. And like, a lot of kinks are really weird. Like Say that with confidence. <laughs> it definitely is a respectable kink, just like anything else between consenting adults. Yes, absolutely. And like, why, just because there's laughter involved, is it less of a kink than, I don't know, some kink where like you're doing really serious stuff? I think it's just equally as valid. And you can get as creative and blend other kinks with it and do these crazy awesome scenes and still achieve that like blissed out headspace that most of us are looking to achieve when we engage in kink play. Also, I don't think that kink needs to constantly be serious. Like it can be fun and silly and, you know, maybe it's just my inner little that makes that easy for me to embrace. But I think that kink can be fun and lighthearted and silly, and it doesn't always have to be serious. It's not always about pain. And I think that that's really a a sort of common misconception. And one of the things that I really enjoyed with my extremely limited (laughs) brush with tickling play was that I really like the contrast of things that seem on the surface to be fun and light and silly and sadism. And Mm you know, that could be a whole topic of its own. And it's one of the things that I like sometimes about topping as a little. So some dark age play where I'm the little as the top and the submissive is like a toy or a dolly or another little. But I really, really enjoy the sort of mind fuck of the contrast between something that's really sadistic and something that seems on the surface to be light and silly and playful. I think it's really fun. Yes. And, <laughs> and there's so like, this is really, really like the humiliation and like the teasing aspects can come into it in a really fun way. So I guess I should like break down different aspects of like what can be a part of the tickling kink, uh, I guess is the next place I should go. Yeah, kind of types and techniques and that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, so there's like a different there's like a few different things. Um, like modalities almost that go into it as a kink. So there's like definitely obviously like the physical part of it. So often it includes bondage uh, for those who uh, know that they flail or that they might try to fight back or are bratty. Um, Honestly, I am a person who does not even need to be in bondage. I just enjoy it. But like if I am playing with somebody and like, that's something that they want to do. I will also just like stay still and take it and like kind of flail, but like not in a way that will like hurt them uh, just because I like it so much, which is like really interesting. I would need to be like in a full body bind. I mean, it's not something that I I definitely (laughs) do not want to sign up for tickling, but I know that myself, I would need to be in like a full body bind or somebody would probably be catching an involuntary fist. (laughs) And yeah, like a lot of it is the physical sensation overload of what's going on. So there's like an overload com- that can be combined with like an amount of confusion, uh, particularly if the purse, if the top like keeps mo- switching around body parts a lot so that like 
you feel like it's a bunch of people attacking you like even though it's only one person it just feels so overwhelming so there's like an element of like mind fuck to it as well uh there can be like sensory deprivation so like they can use like blindfolds earplugs which like can also contribute to the mind fuck because like you just like are at their mercy and you don't know what's going to happen next which can be really hot uh, there's also like the verbal aspect which i mentioned earlier like that teasing there's like a love-hate relationship that a lot of us have with like the stereotypes of like coochie cool i'm gonna tickle you <laughs> we think it's like tropey and stupid but sometimes we just use it because it's funny we're like playing into it in a way or uh a lot of my, my sadist friends will be like what it's just one finger i don't know why you're laughing i'm not doing anything um, yeah <laughs> Which is something I've totally used as well. I'm not going to lie because it's really fun to do. But it's just so fun to just like be like sitting like at a play party casually with like your play partner and just like be poking at their side like while like no one can really see it and be like, what's wrong with you? Why are you so jumpy? Doing that kind of like gaslighting in a way where but it's like pretty overt because they know what's, what's happening and you know what's happening, but other people might not. Uh, although usually, usually they catch on pretty quick if it's like a tickling play party. I can totally see it being like a I'm going to get you kind of thing. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. Of like building the anticipation of like wiggling the fingers like closer and closer to a body part. That can be a big part of it as well. Building anticipation like and having that verbal teasing. I'm totally like having this vision in my mind of somebody who is bound and see you're making me have naughty thoughts and, uh, <laughs> okay it's inappropriate but <laughs> no it's it's gotten my my evil creative mind going and i'm like imagining a person being in like a body bind and like showing them all of these implements for things like impact or like knives or like really kind of evil toys and then doing a sensory deprivation thing. And so you have like built all of this anticipation. So they're thinking that that's what they're going to get. And then what they get is like violent tickling instead. That's so funny. I really like that. You're rude. That's good. I'm wrapping my, my brain around this. It's I'm coming around. <laughs> <laughs> um, with tickling, it can also be like entirely sexual or non-sexual. And that just super depends on preferences. But I will say that like orgasming and like sexual stimulation will increase your sensitivity. So I because I like involving sexual activity and tickling, I have had lots of times where like I would have a partner do sexual things to me and purposefully make me orgasm knowing like with the intention that like I will be more sensitive afterwards. So like that it makes the tickling feel worse. And sometimes I even know that that's the goal when we start. So it's like, I almost don't want to come because I know what's going to come right afterwards, but like eventually I can't help myself. And then as soon as the orgasm happens, they start tickle torturing and it's just so, it feels so much worse. Um, 
I imagine that the reverse is also true, where you can use tickling to make the person sort of overstimulated in a sensory way and then do other types of play like pain play or forced orgasms where their whole body is already in a state of sort of arousal. Mm, yeah. And like, I mean, like slap and tickle is like a phrase that exists for a reason. Like, You know, that's what I'm naming this episode, right? I already have it on the storyboard. Oh my God. Of course you do. Uh, <laughs> and it's real. Um, like if you start with impact and like bring that blood up to the surface and get extra sensitive and then tickle, like it will be super effective. And that's just like a known thing. And so like some of us who... Uh, do more general kink as well will like go back and forth between like impact and tickling just because contrast is fun absolutely but like sexuality can be used in like a myriad of different ways it could be used to like tickling and sexuality or like sexual acts could be used in tandem to like distract the person enough that they can't come which is the thing that used to happen to me a lot and i'd get really frustrated or they could be used together to increase somebody's arousal if they're like a tickling fetishist. Uh, so over time I developed like a specific tickling fetish for like certain body parts. Uh, so like now, like if I'm being like sexually stimulated, like, and my feet are being tickled, then like it is actually like still arousing for me. And like, I can still have a sexual experience through that uh, just because I've been kind of conditioned to that over time. Cause I was dating a tickling fetishist for three and a half years. That was something that we did so much of that. Like it just became wired that way to me. So I'm going to ask in a minute for Panda to tell us a really sexy tickling story. Cause I think that's important, but before we get to the really sexy bits, Not that this hasn't been sexy, but before we get to the sexy story time, (laughs) you know, I think that when you have something like tickling, which on the surface seems to be like very, you know, lighthearted and playful, people have this idea in their mind that there's no risk to it. But I've already mentioned that one of the reasons, in addition to maybe not enjoying receiving that sensation, is that you know, it can change a person's breathing pattern. And for someone like me who has asthma, you know, laughing really hard, especially when in a bondage situation, I don't ever want to have an asthma attack while I'm in a bondage situation. Mm. But I'm sure that that's not actually the only safety consideration. I'm sure that there are others. And it's probably really easy to think, okay, you know, tickling is something that's safe. You can't hurt somebody with tickles. We don't really need to negotiate. But like any kink, that's really not true. Right. Do you want to say some of the like specific kind of things that could come with it that could be risky or some safety considerations? Uh, yeah, just and just a quick thing around like the negotiation part of it as well. Uh, it's pretty important to remember here that like everyone likes a different style. So that can be pretty important to like talk about what does and does not work for them, where they are and are not ticklish. Some people don't like to tell you and they like you to have to figure it out, which can be a game of its own but only if that's something that you both are consenting to. But some people do just like it like really light and like really like kind of sensual and more on the sensation side of things. And like, that's what really gets to them and like gets them going. Uh, And other people really like hard, like digging in that could almost cause bruises or does cause bruises. I've been bruised before. Like I've had like fingertip bruises uh, from tickling because 
I like it really hard and I play with some pretty big sadists. Just keep that spectrum in mind if you're considering adding this kink to your repertoire, uh, that it's really, really, really person dependent on like what body parts will be involved, like what techniques or styles will be involved. And everyone kind of has their own thing. Every bottom has their own preference and every top has their own style. Uh, so it's really just like finding that balance of what works for you. I do recommend if like you are a bottom and enjoy using tickling in your play fairly often to like have like a toolkit. Uh, like a tickling tool bag of implements that you know you enjoy that really work for you or like the things that you love to hate that can be super useful uh, just to like help your top create the best experience for you possible. And also we're not going to dig into all of these things today, but as we've said, the tickling does overlap with a lot of other types of things like bondage. And all of those things do come with their own safety considerations. So even though we're not going to dig into all of those today, we could talk for an hour about the safety of bondage and negotiation for bondage. Just keep in mind that these are considerations that are tickling specific, but not for the entire scene. Right. And I was just going to mention that briefly that like, just remember in tickling, you're going to be tugging at the bondage that you're using. So like, uh, extremities going numb, like discoloration, those are things that you want to be looking out for. And tickling is breath play. You are changing the breathing pattern, you're restricting that breath flow if they're laughing pretty continuously. So just remember that you need to build in breaks, that you need to be able to read your bottom and see where they are at. The bottom needs to have autonomy and be able to say or signal in some way, shape, or form when they need a second. And definitely having water nearby is super important because there's just like a lot of activity. You're probably going to end up sweaty. I almost always do anyway, because there's like a lot of thrashing involved. And like loss of voice is possible if it's very loud and it goes on for a long time. And marks are also possible depending on what kind of tickling you're engaging in. Uh, so those are important things to discuss beforehand to make sure that they are okay. Excellent. I think that's a, a pretty good summary. And again, you know, we're not doing full classes on the show. So these lists of things are never going to be 100%. There's going to be stuff that's worth exploring, things that we've left out. We definitely encourage you to take classes. And might as well, since we're talking about it before we get to the sexy story, we'll just delay one more minute and then we'll kind of take it out with the story. But okay. if people did want to learn more, if they did want to take a class, you were telling me there's actually a whole convention having to do with tickling coming up, right? There is a whole convention. Uh, tickling is something that's not very often taught. I do teach it. There's a teaching pair, uh, Pete and Girly. Um, Pete is foot play 210 on FetLife, I believe, and Girly is G-R-L-E-E. -E, and they have taught many wonderful classes on tickling. But there's also several events that happen in the US uh, that are just for like tickling enthusiasts. Um, so the one that I frequent and that I've been on staff for for many years is Nest, which is the longest running and largest tickling gathering in the world. <laughs> and that's very small, by the way, this is a very niche uh, kink. And this year, I'm sure will be smaller because of COVID and just precautions. 
Uh, but it will be April 29th through May 1st. And I believe if you look up like nest gathering, you could find that online with like ticket information, everything you would need to know. Um, it's so, so, so much fun. There's no pressure to play. It's just a lot of socializing and a really good time with kinky people. Where is it, Panda? Oh, it's in um, it's in the Philadelphia area. Okay, so it's an in-person event yes. near Philly, and it is April 29th through May 1st, and it's called Nest. Okay. Sexy story time. Sexy story time. <laughs> <laughs> I have so many. Oh, my gosh. Um, probably one of my favorites is when I was super young, actually. I was probably like 19 or 20, and with my first ever Dom, who was also primarily into tickling. And we were messing around on his daybed, just like in the living room somewhere. And I don't even, there was no bondage involved in this, like at all. It was just one of those, like where I was just laying there and taking it and would get like a little embarrassed because sometimes he would point out how much he loved it that I would just lay there and take it and not fight him, which, but I'm into humiliation. So that was fine. And he was just going and going and going. He had really long arms and I'm a pretty short person. So it just felt like I was being attacked from like all angles from multiple people. My imagination just started to go to like run with it a little bit and to start even imagining that there were these like impossible, like multiple hands attacking me. He is also very into feet. And so he was doing like a combination of like mouth attention to my feet, which felt sensual, but also tickled. And then like, once my feet (laughs) were like slick enough would like use his nails to like, run across them which like made it so much more torturous um than if they were just like dry i got to a point where i just couldn't even think anymore like i was just laughing and laughing and laughing and i just couldn't concentrate on anything else except for what was happening to me in that moment and i got so out of control <laughs> that i ended up sliding like off of the daybed <laughs> Like, I think I slid off, like, torso and head first and, like, used my arms to catch myself and fell onto the floor. And he didn't skip a beat and came down to where I was on the floor and straddled me and just kept going and was, like, saying all these things, like, I'm going to keep going until you can't even remember your own name. Like, you're just going to be stuck here forever. You're my toy. You can't do anything about it. And I really, like, my brain turned to jello. I couldn't think a damn thing, which is really what I'm after with a lot of what I do in kink. I love that blank feeling. And it was so delicious and we just kept going until I think I tapped out because I was just so out of breath and exhausted and just ended up in a puddle on the floor like wrapped up in his arms to finish and that's one of my favorite scenes ever 
That's super hot. And I mean, who doesn't want any kind of kink scene to end in being a boneless, completely mind-body-fucked puddle? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And that was it. That was it. Awesome. All right, folks. So if you've always wondered what slap tickle really meant, remember you heard it from Sunny and Panda. Thanks for joining us on the show again today, Panda. This was a really fun topic. Yeah. Yay. Oh, God. I'm like frisky now. I hate you. (laughs) Thanks as always for listening to Naughty Talk. Our show is available on most popular podcast platforms. For updates, to submit a request to be a guest on the show, to write in with questions for our hosts or request lifestyle advice, head over to the show's page at sunnyleemain.com. You'll also find information about my novels, including my Turn the Key series, which are dark erotica with themes of hypnosis, BDSM, and sometimes a little bit of magic. All books feature different kinks and are queer inclusive. I hope you've enjoyed the show and you join us again next time.